May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC, Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, doing our bit to preserve the legacy of Shinju Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. Now, today we have a guest, Jane Hirschfeld. Uh, Jane is uh, a well-known poet, poetess. I guess we say poet. Uh, we could say either one, can't we? And um, uh, I know her through the San Francisco Zen Center. And I, I think she arrived at Tassar when I was head monk in 1974. That's when I first met her. And um, we've been in touch more at some times and less at others since then. And we were in touch recently and uh, made this podcast, and she was an excellent guest. Um, look, you can read about her on Wikipedia, but I'm going to read you a little something from the Poetry Foundation website uh, on Jane Hirschfield B, meaning birth, 1953. Oh, my gosh. Uh Award-winning poet, essayist, and translator Jane Hirschfeld is the author of 10 collections of poetry, including The Asking, New and Selected Poems. That's the book that came out this year, and she'll be talking about that. She'll be reading from it. Ledger 2020, The Beauty 2015, long-listed for the National Book Award, Come Thief, 2011, a finalist for the Penn UA Poetry Award, and Given Sugar, Given Salt, 2001, a finalist for the National Book Critics Award. Hirschfeld is also the author of two collections of essays, Nine Gates, Entering the Mind of Poetry, 1997, and Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. 2015, and has edited and co-translated four books collecting the work of world poets from the past, The Ink Dark Moon, poems by Ono no Kamachi and Izumi Shikibu, Women of the Ancient Court of Japan, 1990, Women in Praise of the Sacred, 43 Centuries of Spiritual Poetry by Women, 1994, Mirabai, Ecstatic Poems, 2004, and The Heart of Haiku, 2011. Wow, Jane, you've been at work. 
Hirschfeld's work encompasses a large range of influences drawing from the sciences as well as the world's literary, intellectual, artistic, and spiritual traditions. Her first poem appeared in The Nation in 1973, winning what would the next year become the Discovery Award. Shortly after she graduated from Princeton as a member of the university's first graduating class to include women. She then put aside her writing for nearly eight years to study at the San Francisco Zen Center. Quote, I felt that I'd never make much of a poet if I didn't know more than I knew at that time about what it means to be a human being. I don't think poetry is based just on poetry. It's based on a thoroughly lived life. And um, anyway, it goes on. It's it, it's pretty, you know, I probably read you half of it. So uh, that's on the poetry found, poetryfoundation.org, uh, Poets Jane Hirschfeld. Anyway, um Look, let's give Jane a call. That that uh, uh, time has come. And um, so, look, as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll do that. So when you hear the bell, if you're such a mind, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever and give Jane Hirschfield a call. Hi, David. Hi, Jane. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Well, it's wonderful to hear your voice. Well, it's wonderful to hear yours. You sound just like yourself. Oh, <laughs> well, and you sound like you. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, what, what, what are you up to uh, these days? What are you doing? Well, the, the the great occupying thing is having had the new book come out not that long ago. September 12th was the pub date, and it's a new and selected poems. So it's a whomping large book. Yeah. And, you know, I've been, uh, I suppose if anybody cares, it's called The Asking, and it's it's just a handsome, hefty thing. Quite surprised me when the bound book arrived, because... Even having, you know, the galleys in hand just didn't prepare me for what a dignified-looking thing it is that has my name on the spine. Very surprising. Fifty years of poems. But anyhow, I've been, you know, giving a lot of readings and flying around some and um, absolutely emerging from the last vestiges of sequestration and doing a lot of podcasts and mm -hmm. doing a lot of written interviews so it's new book season. Wow. Well, um, 
you uh, you must do more podcasts and interviews than any other poet. No, I very much doubt that. Um, but I don't track other poets, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't know, but I tr- I keep up with you, you know. And uh, you're uh, you're you're uh, definitely out there. Uh, and uh, I, it's very hard to be heard, seen and heard, if you're a poet, and you have managed to do that quite successfully. Uh, and uh, so uh, how did that all come about? The podcasts? Um, the so it po- started, now, well, oh, yeah. being known? <laughs> yeah, well, all right. I, look, you've got, you've got two, you've got two paths that uh, are one path. But uh, the way body and mind are one, you can look at it from one point of view or the other. Uh, you've got your poetry path. You've got your uh, Buddhist practice path. Uh, well, you know, I can see other things. You've got your just being in nature path. You've got your horseback riding path, you know. <laughs> but... Um, and uh, I've got my connection to science path, which has become rather large and prominent in, in recent years. Oh, let's hear about uh, that. Well, where do you want me to start? Answer your first question or answer your last question? Uh, just w- whatever you want. <laughs> okay, paths. Um, I think I was a um, path-seeking child, which, of course, means I was quiet, uh, introspective, contemplative, uh, looking for a larger life that I was quite sure was out there, but only hints of it seemed to manage to get into, you know, the, the sort of nexus of, uh, family and, and, you know, growing up in, uh, a 12th floor apartment in a post-World War II project in New York City. Um, turned out it was a rather nice project, but it was still a project. Mm. Um, so a kind of, you know, uh, that's in one way being a child in New York would seem like a very rich environment, but in other ways it's a very deprived environment. Mm. So my earliest memory is of what I was later told was probably the first time they took me to the country. So I was probably two years old. I was lying on my back in the grass there was blue sky filling my eyes, the sense of a tall, dark hedge right behind my head, and the taste of a blackberry in my mouth. And mm. that was the world that I knew uh, was missing for most of my days and nights. Mm. And once you get a glimpse, you know, you're just looking for largeness ever, ever after. So I was, and I uh, started to write as soon as I learned how to write and hid it under the mattress because this was not about displaying things to other people. It was about figuring something out privately and in safety and in ways where maybe you could experiment and no one was going to yell at you or judge you or praise you for that matter. Um, so, So that was the beginning. And, you know, certain questions I've noticed. So one of the things about this book, so I had turned down the idea of doing a selected poems 
at least four times before. And mm. finally, my editor sent me a little email and she said, Jane, you're turning 70. Don't you think that would be a good year to bring out your new and selected poems? Mm. And I realized I had lost my excuse because always before what I'd said is, oh, no, no, that feels terribly premature. And you can't say that when you're turning 70. So it turned out being part of a kind of larger retrospective change of, um, you know, how you feel your life. Because, you know, for, for a while now I've known I was on uh, the further side of the arc rather than the beginning side of the arc. But all of a sudden I was spending, you know, the year getting ready to turn 70 looking at 50 years of poems and seeing what lasted and what, what, you know, what changed and what runs all the way through. And it made me realize things like, you know, um, a poem from a couple of books back, which talks about, you know, basically it's an investigation of the self using a lot of different, different uh, points of access to it and asking the question, what is a self? It goes back to when I was, you know, seven years old and eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I would sit there and think, when does it stop being peanut butter and jelly and bread and start being Jane? What is that? So, you know, good preparation for for a Zen student. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) And then the first book that I ever bought for myself at around age eight, I think it was, I wandered into a stationery store on First Avenue that had, um, you know, a wire rack with little books on display. And I came home with a book of Japanese haiku. My. Um, You know, yeah. It's like, that's what drew me in. And the more I learn about haiku, the more I wonder what did I see in it when I was seven or eight years old. But I saw enough. I saw enough. And that, too, you know, my whole life has been engaged with what lies inside and behind and historically part of uh, that book of haiku I I turned towards when mm. I was eight. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Please continue. This is good. <laughs> Which part? Um, so all the different paths. I think all the different paths. One of the wonderful things about you know, one of the things I love about our lineage of Soto Zen, as I understand it in my own, you know, wild horse of the heathers escapee way, uh-huh. um, <laughs> is that every there, there's no separation between practice and ordinary life. And if there is any separation, that is a failure of practice. And so there's nothing, I think Dogen wouldn't like what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is, um, you know, that the Zafu and, you know, he wouldn't mind if I said kitchen practice because that fits in. But anything you do is continuous and equal to anything else you do. You're either bringing to it a broader and more permeable and more connected awareness or you're not. And as far as I'm concerned, every single thing that I care about in this life and have tried to do in this life has been an equal instruction in the practice path. Yeah. Because the world is always telling us, 
you know, um, yeah, that feels better or, oh, that feels worse. Mm. And whether that's, you know, writing a poem and trying to find a real poem or revise a real poem which has something not quite there yet or learning how to say poems out loud in public when I began as a private person who trembled speaking in public because I'm an introvert and not an extrovert or, you know, boy, being with horses, there's no better teacher than a horse because a horse is completely, they are a large, strong, quick animal who lives in the moment and is totally um, emotionally present and responsive, and they will let you know their opinion of what's going on. Mm. And your job is to be with the reality of them and to be on their side, not just on your own side, it's collaborative. It is nonverbal. It takes the whole body, spirit, and mind. And so, you know, all these years, horses have been a great teacher for me. And I'm still very sad because uh, last winter solstice, my beautiful old Arabian flame uh, died at age 32. Oh. And so there's no longer a horse in my life. Oh. oh. Yeah. Oh, where was it when it died? Where was he? He was at the barn in Mere Beach. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for a long time, he was living either full-time or part-time on one of the Green Gulch lower fields. Yeah. And right at the end of, of his life, Rusa, you know, R- Rusa began coming down and hanging out with the horses a fair bit. Uh-huh. And she would see me and flame going by because he was still able to go out on the trails until just a couple of months before he died. And so we would we would see Rusa and talk love of horses together. Mm. Um and and um then eventually she asked somebody why she wasn't seeing me anymore and sent me a lovely note. Um mm. but yeah, yeah, you know. It's he he was he was a great teacher of loving this world all the way through to the end. Um he just grew wiser and more inside his body and more inside the moment and more happy to be alive right up until the end. He was a very good teacher. What happened to the horse's body? Um very graciously for those of us who love them, uh, we don't have to be there when this happens. The woman who takes care of the stable does this for us. So um, after he died, I stayed with him for a while. We covered him with blankets, and then I left, and then a truck comes and takes him away, and nothing very gracious happens after that. I've got a little piece of his tail on, on uh, the shoulder. Yeah. Uh. Ah, yes. Mm. Uh, when my mother died, and, and uh, she was ninety-eight, and oh, uh, so was mine when she died. Ah, <laughs> and I had go been, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I had been with mother uh, for uh, the last few months, and she she had still living in her own home and. She had just stopped driving at my insistence a few months before. Wow. 
But anyway, a woman named Susan Motherall, Mother had many close friends uh, and many admirers, uh, sent me three of your poems. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, about death. Uh, and uh, I believe you. Yeah, you don't remember which ones they oh, are. Oh yeah, I've got I've got them on cute dot com. I've got Susan's note. Oh. I have a whole lot about mother on there, uh, and about uh, stopping eating and drinking as mm-hmm. the uh, natural traditional method of death with dignity, which is what she did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, she, the first was a John Updike poem, uh, and uh, yeah, a nice note. Uh, it's linked to from your page on cute.com, and she sent November Remembering Voltaire. Oh, very, a very early poem, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it was like this, you were happy. That is a perfect poem for that Use. Yeah, and then there was poem with two endings. Oh, those are wonderful choices. And would you like me to say any of them? Yes, certainly. Which one would you like me to say? Can you? What do you remember it, or can you turn to it, or what? <laughs> I can turn to it. I've got I've got the book, and it's got this nice little alphabetical list of poems at the back, so I can look it up. I'll read it was like this. Um, yeah. Although I'd love to do poem with two endings also. Yeah. And then I could read you the poem I wrote about my mother dying. Which All right, was, do it. I think a little less gracious than, than your mother's death, but, you know, it, it happens how it happens. Yeah. So yeah. it was like this, you were happy. I wrote this poem after my in in a very short period of years my father had died my sister had died several older poets who i loved had died and there had been at the beginning of that few year period my father died 2 weeks after 911 happened mm. and so there was the great public death of 911 and then there was the at the time, you know, majorly noticeable great public death of the Indonesian tsunami. Yeah. And so yeah. there were a lot of departures in my mind when I wrote this poem. It was like this, you were happy. It was like this. You were happy, then you were sad, then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent or you were guilty. Actions were taken or not. At times you spoke. At other times you were silent. Mostly it seems you were silent. What could you say? Now it is almost over. Like a lover, your life bends down and kisses your life. It does this not in forgiveness, Between you there is nothing to forgive, but with the simple nod of a baker at the moment he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is a thing now only for others. It doesn't matter what they will make of you or your days. They will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman, 
miss the wrong man, all the stories they tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this. You were happy, then you were sad. You slept, you awakened. Sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, sometimes persimmons. Very good. And a very good delivery. I like your delivery. Oh, thank you. I've been reading so much. And, you know, in all these years, I keep changing how I read poems. Um, I think I've only now, finally, after all these years, figured out how to walk the line between not wanting to... Um, not wanting to over-dramatize, which would be horrible, but also not wanting to not give them their fullness, mm-hmm. which if I was erring for a lot of years, it was erring on the on the maybe a little too plain way of reading because I was so afraid of being over-dramatic. Uh-huh. The first poem with two endings. Uh, poem uh, with two endings. Yep, you don't yeah. want me to? Uh, I was just going to okay. say, uh, I think in general... Uh, I think this about singing songs, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's better to err on the side of being not dramatic enough. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Because there's nothing worse than somebody who's, like, overacting their own life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to throw in a a little Buddhist practice anecdote on this, which is to say... So as somebody who was terrified of speaking in public, and also, I apologize, but I cannot sing. I can't hold a tune. I can't stay in key, any of that. So when I arrived at Tassajara, and um, I think this was even the very first week I was a guest student at Zen Center, I was in um, one of the baths at bath time with Linda Ruth Cutts, who still had her hair down, you know, well past her waist at that point. Mm. And she said something, somehow it came up that, oh yeah, you know, if you come to the monastery and you stay and you practice, and I already knew that, you know, if I was interested in anything, it was being at Tassajara, it was monastic practice. Mm. Um, And... Uh, and she said, "Well, yeah, you know, if you if you if you stay, you know, around the third year, you lead the chance." And I looked at her and I said, "I'll have to leave before then, because I was so scared of having to, you know, hold my voice out in a public way." In that oh kind of yeah, you yeah. know, even the monotone chanting, let alone, you know, the full moon ceremony. Uh-huh. But of course, you know, when I went to Tassajara and I was there and, and I stayed, I wasn't going to leave before my third year, as it turned out, which was, you know, when I had to be a doan and a kokyo and all of that. Mm. And so mm-hmm. the whole first training period, everybody thought I had a voice naturally like Mimi Farina because of the quaver. Mm. But by the time I got to the second training period, I had done it enough times that I was no longer shaking and my voice lost its quaver. Mm. And what that taught me was something which really helped when I started to do poetry readings later on in my life, which was, if you do anything enough times and you don't die, eventually you'll stop being terrified. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was really useful. (laughs) Ah, That's great. Uh. 
Okay, here's poem with two endings. Say death, and the whole room freezes. Even the couches stop moving, even the lamps. Like a squirrel suddenly aware it is being looked at. Say the word continuously, and things begin to go forward. Your life takes on the jerky texture of an old film strip. Continue saying it. Hold it moment after moment inside the mouth. It becomes another syllable. A shopping mall swirls around the corpse of a beetle. Death is voracious. It swallows all the living. Life is voracious. It swallows all the dead. Neither is ever satisfied, neither is ever filled. Each swallows and swallows the world. The grip of life is as strong as the grip of death. Mm. But the vanished, the vanished beloved, oh, where? See, that was the second ending. I fooled you with the first ending. Mm. <laughs> mm. Hmm. Well, uh, actually, I've got the poem in front of me. Uh. (laughs) I didn't fool you. You just vocalized anyhow. Yeah, I I, I went, whoops, (laughs) inside. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. Well, I'm going to tell Susan Motherall that we spend a little time with her. Uh, Oh, please do. Yeah, thank her for thinking my poems would make good company for you. Let, let's let's see what she says. I first came across Jane Hirschfeld's poetry in the New Yorker magazine in the form of November Remembering Voltaire, maybe 35 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Mother died uh, 10 years ago this year. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, uh, for me, I am a gardener and the cycles of new life and the decay of life at the heart of is at the heart of my fate. I hope that this poem is read after my passing, the one with the line, I conjure a stubborn faith in rotting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Uh, that's marvelous. uh, That's marvelous. The next poem, it was like like this, you were happy, was a poem that came to mind after the first time I went to see Adele at Stonegate Nursing Center. Uh, mm. Mother was in a uh, uh, nursing center walking distance from our home through a lovely woods for the last, say, seven weeks of her life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, it was wonderful. I just walked over and spent all day with her. Anyway, I thought about giving it to her, reading it to her, and I suppose I was shy about talking about death, though it seemed to me that Adele's grace in her process was beautiful and was akin to the notion of like a lover, your life bends down and Mm. kisses your life. The final poem in this group is more for those of us living after a death or probably stark endings of any kind. In my experience, she accurately depicts what the process feels like. At least that was true for me after... I was diagnosed with cancer 16 years ago, and after each of my parents died, I love the image I conjure with the words, say death, and the whole room freezes. (laughs) 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 
like a squirrel suddenly aware it is being looked at. Uh, I am glad that I had the opportunity to know your mother a little, to enjoy her company. I shall miss her. Oh, just extraordinary. Yeah. What a wonderful friend for your mother to have had and for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice house, too. Should I keep this cheerful theme going by reading the poem that I wrote after my mother died? Yes. Also at 98? Yes. Um, So this is A Day Just Ends. So this is one of the new poems in the book that wasn't in any previous book because she died. My mother died the summer of 2020, not of COVID, but during COVID. Mm. A Day Just Ends. Its dusk comes simply, without opinion or hesitation. A fork still fits hand, shoes fit feet on this day like any other. She closed her eyes, opened her mouth to receive the end of her life, its last tasting. Mm. Yes, Mm. so unlike your mother, my mother did not stop eating or in drinking. She um, yeah. continued right up until the end. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we, we, she didn't say, I'm going to stop eating. And she mm-hmm. didn't say after a while that she was going to stop drinking, actually even accepting anything. She was, she was uh, like somebody on an acid trip from from the point she started going downhill, and I was just like somebody who's a guide, our normal mm. relationship ended. And I was just there to respond if she wanted something, and I just worked. You know, it's a nice yeah. place. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, uh, I had I have a section on com called Santhara. That, uh, which is just what I said, the natural, traditional way of death with dignity. And it's got a lot of examples. And um, yeah. I was talking to her about it, uh, you know, a couple of years before she died. And she said, first she said, oh, that's terrible. Then she said, well, come to think of it, I have several friends who've died that way. And that was right. the only time we we had discussed that, but she just did it. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to tell you a Tassahara story that involves you that I happened to have heard last night from John Steiner. Uh, oh, good heavens. Yeah, okay. <laughs> who, who sends you his love. Uh, and mine to him. Uh, and um, he uh, he was at Tassahara, and he said he he was talking with you, and he said, He'd been there a while, you know. Maybe he'd mm-hmm. already been there a year or whatever. Uh, and he said to you that he was feeling doubts. And uh, he, he didn't know if he should stay there. Um, and you said to him, well, why don't you just sit with that and watch that and not act on it for a couple of months and, and see how it develops. And uh, he said, you know, that was a very wise. He said, and I certainly agree. Um, 
advice and you know it did it sort of passed and uh uh that was you know and he left when it was ripe for him to leave he felt and and not when you know he was uh, getting the urge to leave too soon but anyway I thought that was neat. And I said, hey, John, I'm going to talk to Jane tomorrow. I'll tell her. Uh, well, I, I do. I I love hearing that I was hopeful to him. Back yeah. Then. yeah. Because I, of course, have the world's worst memory and hardly remember anything I've ever said or done. Um, it's, it's, it's a strange way to live. But what it reminds me of is something, you know, I do remember a very few things stay with me and one of the things which has stayed with me from again like sometimes I feel like everything I learned uh, at Zen Center that has stayed with me came from like the first few weeks and months of practice Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know nothing new ever got in after that maybe Um, but one of the things was a description of uh, practice as resting on a three-legged stool and one leg is great effort, one leg is great faith, and one leg is great doubt. Ah. And I really love that teaching Mm. because it feels to me so correct that you need the great doubt. You know, great faith without great doubt leads to, you know, dogma, not practice. And great effort without great faith and great doubt, you wouldn't know what your effort was tuned towards. It would be, you know, a a guitar string that had broken and was flapping around under its own release tension. Um, And faith, something just reminded me, I I was doing a written interview with uh, the editor of a journal called Ecotheo, which is at the junction of spirituality and ecology. And he himself has a, the editor has a more Christian background, but he's very ecumenical with what he has invited into the journal. And he reminded me in one of his questions that the word belief, that the leaf, which I think is pretty synonymous with, with faith, and the leaf part of belief uh, is is a variation on the word love. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Doesn't that just warm it up? Mm. And yeah, so it puts a turn on the dial of understanding of what you know faith or belief in something is when you realize that it's rooted in love. So mm. that's you know connection and affection and warmth and feeling of, you know, alliance and kinship and, and you know, we can add or not eros as we please, um, you know, agape, eros, whatever kind of love one wants. But mm. belief just has a different feeling to it when you remember that at its root is the feeling of love. Mm. So what if it was, you know, great love, great effort, and great doubt? That's a nice triad. It's not it's not something that many Buddhists would say, but it's kind of nice. I say it every day. Do you? Yeah, I, th- I have I have a thing I go through every morning, and it and the 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 main part where it starts is 
may all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Oh, that's very nice. And I wake up every morning. I took this practice after... So I only, I've traveled a lot, but it's always for poetry. You know, somebody invites me to go somewhere and do something as a poet. Mm-hmm. So I finally, I think it was 2018, it might have been 2017, um, I was invited to Australia for the first time. And somebody told me this Australian, it's an exclamation of happiness. Despite what the grammar sounds like, it's not actually pointed at, at somebody. Um and the exclamation of happiness is, you beauty, you beauty. Um, and I liked that phrase so much mm. that I decided to make as a vow um, that the first thing I would do every morning when I come to consciousness and open my eyes and see the world is to greet whatever it is that is there to be greeted with, you beauty. And hey. I think for me, that's a really good practice mm. you know, to begin the day in wonder, gratitude, admiration, awe. Um, and you know, it doesn't matter if the day is clear. I get a little glimpse of the mountain from my from my pillow. If the day is foggy, I get a glimpse of all the fog. But you know, if I'm in a hotel room somewhere, I get a glimpse of you know the Marriott big screen TV. But whatever it is, just to open your eyes and say, you beauty. God, it's great to be alive. So there's your love life. There's your may all beings love life. And I feel that more and more as I've aged. You know, some, some transition has come into me in recent years where I am so grateful to still be partaking of existence. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like I won't be after I die. I'll just be partaking of it in some rather different way that I can't imagine. But, you know, what luck to be able to see and feel and be and talk with and give and receive and, you know, taste and smell and work and be exhausted. What what luck. What yeah. pure luck. It's so short. Yeah. And here we still are. Yeah. And for all, because I tend towards seeing the sorrow of things and the grief of things and the falling apart of things and the catastrophe that the biosphere is going through and the catastrophe that the political world is going through. It's a really good antidote for me to start the day with you, beauty. Mm. Mm. You know, uh, I can relate to that. I start with thank you. Mm. Yeah. And they're they're sort of related, you know, because I can feel good or I can feel bad, and uh, uh, I, I, you know, if something's really bothering me, I might say, "Thank you." It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to say something about faith and doubt, mm-hmm. uh, brother David at Tassahara. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was mm-hmm. there. I think he was there in 67, our first year. Mm. And he said uh, that faith and doubt belong together. Yes. That doubt is good, 
as long as mm-hmm. faith is the nose on the head of doubt. Hmm. I'm, I'm just conjuring the image. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh-huh. 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 That's, um... So I have to tell you as a total aside, just because it's so delightful, the last time I saw Brother David, um, which was not that many years ago, um, and there had been more. There had been a meeting beforehand, but um, the last the last time I saw him, we were having a long conversation in a hot tub at a neighbor of uh, Roshi Jones Upaya. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, so there we were in in a hot tub together. Um, really, he was probably. I think he was already ninety. <laughs> oh my gosh! Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very impressive. Very impressive. So what a wonderful, you know, being he has been in this world for everybody. With yes. Gratefulness.org and his right. example of boundless energy, service, warmth, communication, you know, just yeah. every everything about him, um, his laugh. Uh, yeah. And, and and he was like an older student, you know. There were only a few people who had been had uh, uh, you know experience of practice, a monastic practice. We started Tatsahara, and he was one of them, you know. Mm. And, and everything was uh, smooth with him. There were no, there were there were. I, you know, I don't have I don't have a single. I don't remember a bump in the road with him. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Um, well, hey, what 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 got you to Zen Center? How did you end up there? Red Dodge van with tie dyed curtains. <laughs> 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 so I had been um, after graduating <laughs> college. I worked for a year on a farm, doing various bits of farm labor. You know, picking. Uh, picking corn and apples and pears and peaches and all right. What uh, what college and and where were you on this farm? Oh, never mind. What college? I was in New Jersey. <laughs> uh-huh. Did you graduate? <laughs> and afterwards, my my boyfriend got the job first. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah, graduated. Um, and my my boyfriend got the job first, and I, you know, it was a great you know filling out of my education. You grow up in New York City. You're sort of, you know, I I was a kid who really liked school. I loved reading and writing. I fell asleep in math class, but never mind. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so so I'd had, you know, my my whole life had been, uh, you know, in in one quadrant of human existence and, you know, falling in love and all of that. And, you know, what was missing from all of this? Well, farm labor was missing. So it was, it was the perfect completion of, you know, my formal education to, to go out and, you know, do, do farm work. Mm. Um, mm. but then he decided he was going to South America and I wasn't invited. Mm. And so I needed to find my future. And a friend, uh, had had an early copy of the bread book. And uh-huh. in the back of the bread book in those early years was the Tassahara monastic schedule. And that's how I knew there was a Zen monastery in America. 
And so I drove off on my red Dodge van looking for where I was going to live and what I was going to do. And I sort of thought I'd find a place I wanted to live and get a job being a waitress and write poems. And that was, you know, I was just looking around. But I knew there was a Zen monastery and I was curious about it. So when I got to California, I looked it up and found it on a map and went to Jamesburg and Lou Hartman was uh, running Jamesburg at the time. Hmm. What and, year? Uh, 1974, summer of 74. And he told me I had to go to the city. Um, you know, the, you couldn't just go into, even though it was summer, he said, you know, you, you have to go to, up to the city and, uh, you know, start there and then you can come back here and, and see what this is like. And I did something completely unlike myself in those years, which was I didn't leave. I stayed. I sat at the picnic table outside of Jamesburg and just didn't go. And a woman who you might remember, do you remember we called her Bonnie Earthshoe because she owned the Earthshoe store in Santa Cruz? Uh, she came wow. out and she told me she'd been a guest student at Tassajara. And I went, marched back up to Lou and I said, what about this guest student business? And, you know, what it seems he maybe recognized, which I didn't even know about, was I was doing a microscopically mild version of Tongario right. in that I was at the gate and I wouldn't leave. And he, you know, must have laughed inside himself and said, well, you know, she's figured it out. She don't leave. So he told me that I could, um, it was too late in the day to go in. I could spend the night with him and Trudy at Jamesburg, wake up, sit zazen with them in the morning, and then uh, he would send me into Tassajara, and Blanche would take care of me. Very good. So that is how I ended up uh, at Tassajara. And, you know, I'm not at all sure I would have gone to the city center first. It was always the monastery I was interested in. Yeah. And so, and of course, once I spent my week at Tassajara, then I went to Page Street and was a guest student, and then I went to Green Gulch and I was a guest student. And then I finished my trip and came back and, and moved into the city. Well, but um, we missed you at Tassajara. You know, I was head monk, uh, uh, yeah. which continued through the summer. I had been in the spring. And so mm -hmm. I remember you coming in. Well, you terrified me because I was sitting at lunch um, and you straightened me up, my posture. <laughs> Nobody would ever done that to me before. Huh. It was like, what? Huh. <laughs> so that was my, my introduction to you, um, was this is the man who walked over, saw me slumping, and put his hand on my back and shoulders and straightened me up. Wow. And, you know, you were, of course, you know, you were you were there at that time with Diane, and Kelly was, you know, a little baby running around, and and you were very noticeable. Um, and and once I got over my terror of you, <laughs> I think you straightened me up in zazen. Also, I think in the zendo, you you also corrected my posture. And to this day, you know, all these decades later, I'm still trying to um, 
have have reasonably good posture. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 but yeah. So so yeah, you were there with me right from the beginning, just like Linda Ruth was, and um, uh, Michael Wenger and Diane Burr made a big impression on me. They were the gardening crew, and I saw um, Diane crying over a wheelbarrow and seeing somebody who was like, you know, as far as I was concerned, that was a senior student. You know, back then, anybody who'd been around for a few years was a senior student. And the fact that she was weeping over a wheelbarrow, I felt like, oh, I could do this. So, you know, it was a great teaching in one of the things which is so helpful, you know, Japanese Zen puts on a really good face a lot of the time. And for somebody like me, it was just desperately helpful to know that people were not necessarily always keeping it perfectly together. Right. Because I was not going to keep it perfectly together. Right, right. There's a lot of pretending in the... Uh Japanese yeah. uh, Zen and other worlds. It's part of the culture. Yeah. And know. it's not unuseful. No. It's just really no. useful to know that, well, if you can't pretend, you can just be who you are, and that's all right, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're under so much pressure, social pressure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, but many good points. There are a lot to learn from them. Uh that's that's great. That that's great. Uh, anything else you remember from from Tassara there that time? Oh, as a guest student, well, the the that every single morning because I was never a morning person in my life. Every morning the wake up bell would go, and I would go, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> and, and and you know, every night at the end of evening zazen, I'd go, "This is wonderful. I want to keep." doing this so, uh, so that was the first week was every morning what <laughs> and every night yeah now I also remember um, thinking that I would uh, stay a few months until I understood what this Buddhism business was all about um, you know that was my plan I'll hang around for a few months until I get you know until I understand what this and then I'll you know go back to plan A which <laughs> was writing poems and of course, what happens when you practice a few months is you understand absolutely, completely, and with gratefulness that you understand nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew I was in it for the long run. Mm. 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 And and you went back to the city then? Yeah, I went back to the city and did, you know, the year of practice that one must do before going back to the monastery. And as soon as I was allowed to go back to Tassar, I I came at the end of, um, you know, I I might have this, it has to have been 74. Yeah, so the summer of 75, while it was still summer, I went down before the start of training period and, and, uh, you know, did did my one day of Tongario then and then my, my full Tongario when training period started. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I've always, I've really treasured um, the experience of Tongario, which was unbelievably hard for me. It was like I did not do Tongario in style. Uh-huh. All I did was stay on 
the cushion. That's right. But what I loved was many years later when I was writing an essay, first to give as a uh, keynote talk at Gary Snyder's Art of the Wild conference that he ran for some years up in what is now called, I believe, Paradise Valley. Um, and he asked me on rather short notice to do a keynote for that year's conference. And it usually takes me months and months to write a talk. And I always have to write my talks. I can't just, you know, I don't know how people give a talk every week. Um, but anyhow, I, I looked around for an idea and I remembered something that I'd learned in high school, which was a book by an anthropologist named Victor Turner called The Ritual Process, in which he talks about the state of liminality, of being no one, of being betwixt and between a person on the threshold, and how every traditional ritual, there is a moment in the ritual when you are no one. You mm. are a person of no rank, you are a person of no status, you are a person of no name. Mm. And Tongario, that's exactly what you are, because, you know, when Zendo isn't being used formally for the people who are on the regular schedule, you're just thrown in there. There's no bells. There's no hen. When I was doing Tongario, they were doing carpentry on the Zendo. And, you know, the, they were banging and swinging and talking. And we just didn't exist. We were no one and nothing. We were in that betwixt and between state. Mm. And I am so glad that I have experienced a ritual like that in an extended way, because I loved it. I loved being nobody. It was great. You know, it was. It felt like um, a true experience, and it's such a different flavor of the experience than, you know, um, the more usual, uh, what one would call, you know, body and mind dropping away, which is to be no one in a very much more profound sense. Yeah. And, you know, world, world, you know, um, even, you know, dissolving sense when self and world dissolve and, and all, you know. But to have been nobody, you know, restlessly and in pain and gritting my teeth and just getting through, that was a really good thing to get to do also, um, you know, because there's all kinds of ways to... Um, surrender the idea of the self as this all-powerful three-year-old that can throw a tantrum and have its way. Mm. Mm. I love this conversation because it's so different than any of the other podcasts I've done. You know, you and I, we share something, and I yeah. sort of assume that anybody, anybody who listens to this conversation will also have shared something. And so, you know, I can talk about all kinds of things I would never have talked about to Ezra Klein, you know, <laughs> I just wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, w I want to hear more. Uh, one thing I want to know is what did you do that year in the city? Oh, um, so this is hilarious. So my first, uh, first I, I uh, was put uh, in a shared room with Linda Hess. Who you know? Mm. I just saw we had a we had a big celebration for Kaz's 90th birthday just a couple months ago at mm. Green Gulch, and you know here we all are—the woman who I shared my first room with in Page Street—and and 
you know, all, a lifetime later, here here we are. Um, you know, her her married to cause with beautiful grown children who are really good musicians. If you've never heard them, mm. um, and and uh, so, but apparently, I think this is you know very funny because I would never do this now. But I apparently arrived at Zen Center. Everybody tells me, um, declaring that I was a poet, um, and that. I needed a room of my own so I could write, which, you know, it's like, I still need a room of my own so I can write, but I don't go around the world declaring, I feel like, you know, I'm a poet when I'm writing a poem, and the rest of the time I'm just, you know, somebody else entirely, but apparently I arrived at Zen Center, you know, you know, fixed in this idea that I was indeed a poet, although I had done almost nothing, um, and I did get a room of my own, and and uh, I I liked having that. And my work was I had thought so it paid very well per hour as a um, freelance job that you could do on your own schedule. I joined the San Francisco Artist Modeling Guild. Oh, so I posed for drawing classes. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, I'm learning to sit still anyhow. I might as well be, you know, sitting still and getting paid for it as well as sitting still in the Zendo. And, you know, by the time I left, I'd had kind of enough of sitting still. <laughs> uh-huh. There were people who came to Tassahara when I was there and the summer that I worked in the dining room. There mm-hmm. were people who looked at me as I was pouring their coffee and said, oh, I have a drawing of you over my fireplace. <laughs> oh, that's so neat. You know, Philip Wilson, I don't know if yeah. you ever met him. Uh, he was one of uh, Suzuki Roshi's earliest Yeah, students. ahead of my time. Ahead uh, but of my time. Yeah. he's one of the many, many, many early students who came from the Art Institute. And Philip... Uh, had a big muscular gorilla body and he did a lot of modeling for uh, art glasses and he said that oh. was his first experience of uh of of meditation um, accidentally and it's one of the things that got him interested in zazen because he liked That's- it Fascinating. I didn't even know I wasn't the first and only person at Zen Center to do that for a living. That is fantastic. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And then, you know, when Mayumi came from Japan, I was living at Green Gulch, and she got her house in Muir Beach. And uh, she was very shy about asking any Zen students to model for her, but somebody told her that I had used to do this. Oh. And so I was her very first model. Um <sighs> Because she felt it was all right to ask me. Goddess. But then later on, you know, given, given the body type that she preferred to draw, um, later on she did get other people who were more suited for, for the anatomy. But there, I, I have seen a Mayumi print of myself in the house of people who had no idea that it was me. Ooh, um, so. <laughs> so neat. Wow. Wow. Well, you're one of the goddesses. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just, just, just a you know naked girl with striped stocks in a field of wildflowers. I, I, I was never a goddess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I think Betsy Sawyer is planting some things, leaning over, bending, bending down. You know, it's a she. She did some non-goddess images in those years. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Oh wow! Wow. So that's what you did that year. That's, That's what I did. I wrote poems and I worked as a, and you know, we were a guild, we were a union, so it was a very um, nicely protected set of circumstances. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and then I, um, you know, got back to Tassajara as quickly as I could. And I was director when you came back. Yes. For, yes. A, for a little while. Uh, yeah. Seventy-five, then then uh, the fall practice period. I, I went to the city, so just for a little while. And and how long did you stay there? And what happened? And what was it like, etc. Oh, little question, huh? Right. Um, so at the time, we were told that three years was the longest you could stay. So I set my my you know my sights on three years. And it turned out that people who sat Tangaria with me stayed much longer than three years, i.e. Um, Keith Meyerhoff sat Tangaria <laughs> with me. Leslie had come years. The, the half <laughs> year earlier, but so they never left. Right. Uh, but, but my understanding was that it was a thousand days, that that was the traditional amount of time. And so I intended to stay for a thousand days. And I always felt... You know, it's it's interesting. Again, one of those things I heard very early in my time at Page Street um, was the suggestion that there are four practice paths. Um, there is the path of the priest, the path of the monk, the path of the lay person, and then the fourth one is tea house practice. Mm. And tea house practice is a kind of invisible practice, and it comes from um, a koan uh, that uh, Paul Reps had in one of his one of his collections, and I think it's a Hakuan koan, if I'm remembering correctly, and it's about the old lady who runs a tea house down the road from a monastery, and you know. People just kind of like to go there. They like the way she looks at them when they walk in. They like the way she cleans the counter. They like the way she pours the tea. They like the tea. Um, but word gets around inside the monastery that the abbot thinks rather highly of this old lady. And so the monks will go to the tea house, and the way the story goes is, you know, if they come in and they just want tea, she pours them tea, and it's all fine, and, and they leave. But if they come in with a sort of um, highfalutin idea that they're monks, and who the hell is she, and they're going to test her, because after all, monks are superior, and men are superior, and if she gets a whiff of that when they come in, she um, pulls them behind a screen and, and hits them with an iron poker. Ooh. Um, yes, Yes, one of those stories, which nobody likes to tell anymore. But um, uh, And what I loved about that story wasn't so much the part about testing. I, I'm sure I liked the feminist part of it quite a lot. But I loved the idea of a practice that doesn't announce itself as practice, that it's just 
the person quietly inhabiting the world in a certain way, and that's how they're practicing. And I always loved that ideal, and I always thought that was what I would go back to. Mm. And for many, many years it was. Mm. Um, There were a lot of years when I was known as a poet, but nobody knew I had any Zen practice background. And I just didn't talk about it in that realm. And every once in a while, somebody would come up to me and sort of look at me and say, you meditate, don't you? (laughs) And and Uh. I would sort of nod. You know, I wouldn't deny it, but they had to see it for themselves. Uh. I I wasn't walking around, you know, with, with a label on. And for a whole lot of years, even after it became known, I really disliked being called a Buddhist poet or a Zen poet, because I felt like it would, you know, a lot of people have a lot of wrong ideas about what Zen or Buddhism mean, and I didn't want them attaching that, and I didn't want them to think my poems had, you know, some preset dogmatic agenda to them. And so it always made me really uncomfortable, and I would sort of do my best to, you know, get them to stop saying it. And then again, very, very recently, something just changed, and... I gave up. I sort of went, you know, it's fine. It's the truth of my life. Let people say it if they want to. What's the problem? So it's it just, you know, after decades of going, please don't call me a Buddhist poet. Now I go, call me anything you want. It's fine. <laughs> mm. uh, that's good. Well, you did a 2006 uh, interview uh, that was put on, uh, it was labeled, Zen and the art of poetry. Uh, yeah, things got out of hand. <laughs> I've, I've got that uh, on your your link to it from your page, and incidentally, it's good. No, it's really good. Uh, it reads well, like never... you wrote it. I mean, it just reads so smooth. And I, well, but I saved I it. <laughs> I not only link to it, I save it because the links oh. go bad and things disappear. Right. Right. Thank you. Um, So I never minded inside of, you know, Zen communities. So, you know, I taught workshops at Tassajara for many years. I taught at Upaya. I taught at Mount Tremper. Um, I never minded being a Buddhist in a Buddhist setting. It was just that when I wasn't in a Buddhist setting, I didn't want to be labeled something that people wouldn't even know what it meant. Right. I understand completely. Yeah. 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 Uh, Indeed. And uh, Suzuki Roshi said once, he said, well, even uh, the word, use the word Buddhism is a a dirty word. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the most un-Zen thing in the world to want to be labeled Zen. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's the opposite of Zen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be labeled anything. Yeah. Um, you know, practice isn't isn't about labels. It's about walking away from them. Mm. Um, or, you know, they become as meaningless as, you know, that poem that says, say, you know, if you just repeat death over and over, it becomes utterly meaningless as a word. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, there, there, there is, the actuality of our moment-to-moment lives, and that has very little to do with the ideas 
not nothing, because, you know, you do have intention, and you do have some, you know, internalized sense of almost a gyroscope that decades of practice, you know, sets spinning inside of you and you recognize when it's wobbling. Um, but but mm. labels, that's not helpful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, there's so much hype around it. You know, I live in Bali, sort of like that. There's a, Bali's all hype. Every, you know, it's just unbelievable. Uh, and, uh, oh, and then there's Zen in Bali. Uh, <laughs> a double hype. <laughs> so, and then there's real Bali, where you live. <laughs> yeah, well, many of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a small place. It's, it's the yeah. size of, uh, Marin and Sonoma. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. It yeah. looms so large in the imagination. <laughs> yeah. I've never been. Everybody who has been, you know, speaks so incredibly warmly of it. Even if they're only having the tourist experience, they come back sort of going, this is life-changing. Really? Um, and really? Yeah, Goodness. they do. They do. Uh, Maybe I just know the right people. Um, uh who, we're able to, you know, not be blindfolded by by whatever. But um, well, yeah. no. If there's a Balinese poetry festival, I'll get there. And if there's not, I probably never will. <laughs> oh, I've gone to a lot of poetry slams here. I won one of them. Uh, well, of course you did. <laughs> all I did was read a song of mine that was real uh-huh. sexy that I'd written for Katrinka's uh, birthday, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very different. But after that, I just did stuff on climate change and trash and wake up stuff. And, and, uh, that wasn't as popular as the sexy thing. Ah, uh, well, you know, slams are, slams are their own vocabulary. Yeah. So that pulls us back to something right from the beginning that, that we sort of, you know, a, a little flag wave and then dropped, which was, um, when I talked about uh, the increasing presence of science in my poems. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that has to do with the increasing presence of the catastrophe of the biosphere in my poems. And it has become, you know, it's not the only thing I write about, but it is a large foreground topic for me. Yeah. To um, examine from, you know, different angles, different, different ways of seeing, different ways of acknowledging. I mean, the, the darkest poem I've ever written, uh, was, uh, so it's got a title that comes, uh, in relationship to, uh, the Messéon piece, uh, Quartet for the End of Time. And when Messéon wrote that, he was a prisoner of war in a camp during World War II, a German prisoner of war camp. Um, And what he meant by the end of time was something completely different than what my poem means by the end of time, which is looking at the climate disaster. Um, But it's the darkest thing I've ever written. But it felt very real and needed saying. And then it was followed by a poem in which I almost apologized to this 
fragile but beautiful world for not remembering how beautiful it is. Yeah. And so that dichotomy has been, you know, in poem after poem after poem. I mean, I wrote a poem called, I know you've been writing about this, you know, forever and a half, but um, so the first poem that I wrote that had a title that speaks directly to it is is a poem called Global Warming that I wrote in 2004. Mm. Um, oh, good. But That's a long yeah. time ago. That's good for you. Yeah, yeah. But then the most recent book uh, before this one, a book called Ledger, um, which was published in 2020, so it came out the very day that people in America understood that everything had changed in the world, which was March 10th, 2020. That's when uh, the pandemic became real in America, That my pub date. Um, but that book is full of work looking at climate change and... What? You want to read, uh, let them not say? Sure. I would be happy to let them not say. So this was written, this is both the beginning poem in the book Ledger and also the earliest poem that I wrote. So it was, that that went into that book. So it was written in 2014. And it was written with the biosphere crisis in mind, it happened to be published on a day that turned it into a political poem because it was published on the day that the former president was inaugurated and went out in that context, which it lives in perfectly well as well. Mm. Uh, But here it is. Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say... We did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say as they must say something. A kerosene beauty. It burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. So that poem imagines the future looking back at us at this moment of pivot or non-pivot and knowing how it turned out. And the poem is trying to make itself meaningless. You know, if in 150 years everything's looking really good, this poem will have no meaning. It will have emptied itself of meaning. But that's the whole point of it, is to say, you know, don't let them say, we did not enough. That's what we don't want to happen. And of course, you know, Again, we who were at Tassajara during certain years, uh, when I write about kerosene beauty, um, we lived by those lamps. We burned our fossil fuel quotient and more. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, actually, was, I complained about that. Uh, man, I, I, and I talked to Keith about it year after year. I said, you realize you're, you're, you're creating 
uh, a low level of uh, smog at Tatsahara right. with those these uh, Coleman lanterns at night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and I developed uh, an allergy, uh, largely due to my foolish overuse of them while I stayed up studying hours and hours. Uh, and then in Japan, it really hit me. I, 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 because mm. kerosene was so big there. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, yes. it's all, it's all solar now. And, yeah. You know, it's still, even though I've gone back and taught many workshops, um, as gradually more and more of the cabins were, were brought onto the solar system, but it's still a little strange for me to go to Tassahara and flick a light switch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful for it. And I'm very grateful that they got really beautiful replacements for those outside lamps. But, you know, the light color is, is over towards orange, so it has the feeling of fire. Um, mm. uh, but, yeah, you know, it's like we have lived through so many changes in our lifetimes. You know, I was just a kid when the first Earth Day happened, but I was old enough to remember it. And... All of our hopes and all of our expectations, and we thought the world was going to change right then and there in 1970. That's right. And here That's we right. are, 53 years later, and people are still fighting about it. It's incomprehensible. Yeah. 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 Uh, indeed. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, it's... Um, you know, one way to look at what's happening in the world is there's a struggle uh, going on uh, between uh, the forces of world suicide and the forces of wanting to live and continue. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so you still have your World Suicide Club T-shirt that you made? Uh, I, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't. Have the uh, <laughs> no, uh, but but uh, world suicide. I, I it's uh, on you know that. It, it, but I I I uploaded, I think ten anti nuclear songs, uh, and and yeah. uh, world suicide and freeze please, are on it. Yeah. And they're an album now uh, on YouTube, and Spotify, and all that. Good, good, uh, good, good. Uh-huh. Yeah. You were you you know you you were such a you know such a fabulous example of a free spirit rule breaking you know unstinting activist working as a bodhisattva with ten thousand and three hands and not looking like a good Zen student you know <laughs> you were looking like. A force of nature, and, <laughs> and you know, again, that's as good as uh, Diane Burr weeping over a billboard for me. <laughs> uh, uh, I love that image. Uh, yeah. I know, you know, I, I uh, took a note. Uh, that's beautiful. I mean, you speak, you speak um, uh, poetically sometimes. You know, quite a bit. Uh, you know, <laughs> You're you're not a shy little girl anymore. You're 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 uh, you've got a and and also you have a musical quality to to your speaking, uh, and you don't need to sing. 
you you got to leave that to some you know other people have to you got to leave something for them oh yeah yeah no one one thing i i do love about the world is um thank goodness there are people of every different kind because we really need the division of labor you know i right. i when i was a young feminist i thought that i could do it all i thought i could you know learn to build things and do my own car mechanics and and you know be 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 handy and all of that and then you know came the day when i was trying to turn some socket on on the van to change its oil and ended up with you know the socket stuck and my knuckles bloody and i just looked at myself and went jane you can pay people to do this <laughs> you yeah. really can yeah but you know i love uh you know the people who are organizers and let me do my little bit of pitching in so you know i started with the 2016 election results night i began that night taking some action, however minuscule, however, you know, futile, just something every single day. And I am so grateful now that there's, you know, this wonderful group of people who they sort of scroll through all of the opportunities and every once in a while, the one whose list I'm on sends an email and says, here are the postcard campaigns that, you know, we're offering right now. Here's the script here. You know, let me, let us know how many you want to write. And, you know, we'll send you the names and addresses and what to do. And, and you can do that. And I've pretty much settled on that as, you know, I'll still make some donations and things like that, of course. But for the, for the day-to-day activity, I think you could do worse than encourage people to register to vote or to tell them how to vote early, or with certain campaigns to suggest why they might want to vote a certain way. So I feel like for my, for what I do, not as me, Jane, the poet, the public speaker, the person who has a little bit of a voice, you know, I do all of that whenever I can. But when I can't do that, I can always write a postcard. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's... uh uh, I admire that. That's uh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, but your poem also, your, your poetry, I mean, like, your let them not say. That was that was read and heard by many, many, many people. Uh, yeah, and it's still having, it's having a very interesting life, which I'm very pleased about. Um, it, so, you know, Orville Schell put together this big traveling exhibit called Coal and Ice, which is, it was mostly enormous oversized um, images of coal mining and environmental damage from coal mining. And it it gets mounted periodically. I think the first time it went up in Paris, it was at Fort Mason once years ago, and last year was at the Kennedy Center in D.C., and they asked permission to put that poem near the near the end of the exhibit. As you walk through all these gigantic photographs, right near the end, you would see that poem at a large scale written out. And uh, Bill McKibben and the Third Act movement, which is basically, you know, having people of our age cohort um, involving us in, in, in climate activism. Uh, a group is just constellating in New England, and 
uh, somebody who was working on putting that together had me make a video of me saying the poem to oh. to show at the meeting, and composers keep asking to set the poem. You know, classical composers. So there's there's a beautiful YouTube of of one where they added visuals to it, done by a Scottish composer who has an organization called Choirs for Climate. And it's all Creative Commons. You know, anybody who wants it can have the score and perform it somewhere. Mm. Um, and it's been, you know, it's been set and sung and performed multiple times. Somebody who's, you know, writing writing a book with, you know, with a, a known person with a major publisher just asked for permission to put it in. So the poem actually is finding its home as an activist eco poem, mm-hmm. and I love the idea that I'm being of service in that way, because you know it's not. I write poems because I myself am bewildered and perplexed, or thrown, or full of grief, or you know something needs to be worked through to a different relationship to it. So I write the poems first, you know, they are life rafts for myself. But then, you know, there's no reason to publish them if nobody is helped or interested. Nothing says a poem has to be published. So having published that poem and having felt when I first wrote it, oh, this poem might have some work to do in the world, it's really quite amazing to discover Yes, the world seems to agree, and it's putting that poem into harness in a lot of ways. And mm. I'm very grateful to be providing mm. a way, a reminder. And after I wrote it, that's why the whole book that followed it is so full of poems on this subject matter. It made me realize I had to live up to the words that I had come up with. Mm. It made me realize it was my job to live up to that poem. Mm. And so that's what I've tried to do ever, ever since. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's um, good for you. Um, uh, I am, uh, 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 you know, most grateful, I could say. Uh, I wanted to say one thing. Uh, about your your poetry and your 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 bringing science in it and just your whole practice as a poet uh, and it's one with your Zen practice same thing but I think of Peg Anderson who was born one year before Suzuki Roshi and mm. uh, uh she would, she sat it with the Los Altos Zendo. But when she first met him, she said, well, I've been, I was a student of Saburo Hasegawa, uh, okay. who was at Stanford, maybe, uh, and, and was her tea master. And she hmm. said, my way actually is the way of tea. So, uh, uh, you know, she said, well, I, I sit at Marion's, but actually my way is the way of tea. And Suzuki said to her, well, Zazen has nothing to do with it. <laughs> she, 
she was sort of apologizing to uh, him. Uh, right. That, you yeah. know, uh, and he yeah. just dismissed it. No, no, it's not. It's not. And, and uh, once uh, Baker Roshi, actually, I don't like to say Suzuki Roshi. I just, we should just call him Shunryu like we call Dogen Dogen. And because mm-hmm. then there, then we can just call Baker Dick and Baker and, and, and Reb's Reb. Nobody says Reb. That's you know. right. Reb's always been Reb. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm against, I'm against actually the word Roshi. I'd say it to be polite and, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but, um, oh yeah. So, so Dick in a lecture once said, all the Buddhists laugh at someone who, de- who, uh, depends on Zazen. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I'm happy to hear you uh, bringing that strand into it. Because, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's. I've always felt that you know some of the best bodhisattvas in the world have never heard the word Buddhism. That's um, right. You know, that's it, right. It, it, yeah, you know, the path is the path, and people are going to find it, and they'll find it in farming, and they'll find it in playing a musical instrument, and they'll find it in being a parent. And they'll they'll just you know it's if it only had to do with Zen and the forms of Zen, how could it be humanly true? Right. I I I I have never liked, and and there's been that tendency uh, earlier on, less now, uh, much less now. Of uh, you know, basically Zen is the only way. It's special. It's better and. Oh, I I never liked that. Uh, That's my disqualifier for any any teacher who I hear say anything like that, including oh, there are many ways they're all good, but my way is best. Yeah, I always yeah. hear that, and my heart sinks. You know, it just go no, oh, oh, another another one falling short. There we are. Well, but 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 you can just reinterpret it. Uh, well, or you take the good and yeah. and ignore, yeah. you know, ig- ignore the little flashes of disappointment and take right. the good. Take right. the take the teaching that serves and forgive the teaching that you know. Yeah, doesn't. yeah. Uh, I, I'm I really, such a believer in forgiveness these days. People yeah. cut each other yeah. so little slack. Yeah, and you have gotta yeah. cut everybody an enormous amount of slack. Yeah, because yeah. we're all so very fallible. Yeah. Uh, well, when one thing about a, a teacher saying this is the best way, this and that, is a teachers, a lot of teachers do, uh, want their students or want, want people to focus on their what, the way they're doing it. And say in, in Japan, you choose a path or you choose a teacher or something and you stick with that. You don't mess with mm-hmm. other stuff. You focus on it. And, right. uh, so uh, it could be looked at that way, you know. However, there have been, uh, that you know, the idea that uh, that our teacher is the best teacher are uh, it it uh, and, and and even scoffing that uh, there have been Zen groups uh, where it, for periods earlier on, not, I'd say not so much now, would really. Just scoff at everybody else, other sin groups, everything. You know, we're so lucky to be uh, here. And uh, right. uh, Suzuki did not encourage that at all. Yes. Uh, 
although it was yeah. n- natural for people to think that and say that. They, you know, he couldn't well, stop it. Well, as we it. know, he welcomed, you know, he welcomed Brother David, he welcomed Trungpa, he welcomed, you know, many, many people from many lineages. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's a lovely, a lovely thing. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly get it about, you know, do one thing seriously. I've never practiced anywhere except Soto Zen and Zen Center and its places, Um I, you know, I, I edited Jack Cornfield's first two big books and I was very, very grateful to immerse myself in his teaching as a, as somebody working on his book with, books with him. Um, but I've never gone to a Vipassana retreat and I have nothing against it. I think it might have been a great idea. I just never did it yeah. because I found one thing and, and that's all I've done all my life. Um, but that has nothing to do with better or not better when when new people when I meet someone who's interested in practice um, but they're really they have very little idea of of anything I ask them what does your mind like to do because practice is so difficult that it's probably a good idea to take up whatever school of practice is in accord with how your mind already likes to do things. And so for me, even though, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a person of word, the silence of Shikantaza was home ground for mm. me. I love the silence of Shikantaza. Um, but for somebody whose mind loves to create and work with images, maybe you send them to Tibetan Buddhism, which is full of working with images. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who, you know, sort of likes classification and noticing things, um, Vipassana is probably going to be a really good path for that person because they're already tuned towards Vipassana. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, the same with Rinzai, the same with chanting, the same with any of these paths. Yeah. It's whatever you already love to do, maybe try that one first because it's more likely that you'll stick with it. Yeah. In Japan, there's an idea of in or go in, honorable in, in. Sort of mm-hmm. means uh, uh, good chemistry or um, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, you bonded with this teacher. We have good in, you know. Yes. So Interesting. You, somebody said, well, uh, uh, oh, you went to such and such temple. What did you think of so and so? It said, "Oh yeah, uh, well, we didn't have in. See, it's not a total put down. Oh, he's not a good teacher. He just means that right. he and I didn't have that chemistry or or whatever." Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, I like that way of looking at it because it it's not dismissing or putting down that person uh, or that I like teaching. That also. I like that also. Yeah, yeah. So Um, we've been talking a long time. Yes. And people probably would like us to wind it up, I would guess. I wanted to ask you one other thing. I've talked with you enough. I know we could go for four hours, but we shouldn't. (laughs) I I wanted to mention one other thing, though, with you, that uh, as an early feminist, uh, Mm. you know, I've been working, I'm working on this book, Tatsahara Stories. Uh, mm-hmm. which I've been working on forever. Uh, 
uh, and, and unlike with Crooked Cucumber and Thank You and Okay, where I had nothing else I was doing, it's hard for me to get to it. But one thing I really noticed so strongly is how extreme, it, how much things have changed in the, <laughs> in the Zen Center world. I mean, it was so male dominated back then. And, and it, it was. Extraordinary. I couldn't believe it when I arrived. So I come in with, you know, my stick shift Dodge van over the road uh, that I'd driven cross country. And I come in for my first training period. I'm on a general labor. And I'm not allowed to drive the pickup truck. Only the boys are allowed to drive the pickup truck. Well, that's bad. I just, I just couldn't believe it. I just what? I can't drive the pickup truck. Are you crazy? Yeah. But I was never allowed to drive the pickup truck. Well, you never overcame. You know, uh, very early on at Tassajara, um, uh, Gloria Kuhn, uh, Paul Disco wanted Gloria to to drive the big truck. Uh-huh. Uh, Six-ton drive. Yeah. And all people said, oh, she can't do that. You know, but it was just totally overridden. So I have, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm saddened. To hear it, it loomed its head back seven years later, uh, yes, it eight or more. Uh, that's <laughs> terrible. They should be horse whipped. Um, I mean, uh, and uh, oh, there were so many things. Uh, there was a, a woman uh, who was recommended to be the head just desk, pardon me, the head guest cook. Uh, right. And in a meeting, they said, oh, she's too emotional, you know, she could have something. And I just said, you wouldn't say that if she was a man. Look, we had Ed Brown as a cookie, having temper tantrums say. every day. <laughs> you know, you're just holding her to <laughs> uh, Anyway, it's not gone. It's still not gone. It's just part of our, uh, you know, it's, it's a koan, uh, something we yeah. have to do, but there have been, there's been a lot of change, uh, especially There's been a lot of change and a lot of, you know, major, major women, you know, in, in uh, the, the women abbots have conducted themselves gorgeously. And yeah. Catherine Thanis yeah. did a great job, you know, running her Santa Cruz group and, and left us a wonderful book of her teachings and, uh, Roshi Joan, which is how she likes to be referred to. Um, you know, we the landscape really has changed, and oh, I'm yeah. very, very grateful for it. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed. Uh, all right. Well, we have gone on for quite some time. I have loved talking with you, and I'm so impressed with you. And so happy to speak with you. And I'd like to thank you for the uh, wonderful work you did on those two books of mine that I mentioned. Uh, I was honored to have you go over them. And uh, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens with the, the next one. I, I, uh, it, 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 it won't compare. It can't. Uh, well, it will be... It- Will be inimitably what it is. Yeah, and and you know, I I'm just going to say, you know, um, my admiration for everything that you do and have done is boundless. 
absolutely boundless. Um, you know, you uh, com and, you know, the books from the very beginning with, you know, um, Thank You and Okay, Diary of an American Zen Failure, what a great book that was, and, and everything between. You know, you've just, um, you have done remarkable service to us all by your, um, what is that? There's a book title, Meetings with Remarkable, I'm going to say Humans, um uh you know you you have you have met and been a remarkable human and uh you have left us much evidence that will live on of all of that can we close with a poem just cuz i like to close yes. with a poem yes yes okay so um i'm going to uh i i was sort of trying to think if you have one you'd like me to read speak up otherwise i no no i want one. you to choose Okay, so uh, incidentally, is- reading through your poetry, which I upped it, to get through your new book will take me. I'm a very slow reader, and also uh, reading your poetry is not like reading prose. But it, no. it it's like, I, it, oh, God, I can't describe it. It's, it's like hearing a Suzuki lecture and thinking, oh, that was wonderful, and then Afterwards, going, uh, what did he say again? Uh, and, and then, you know, so you go back, and it's it's like an experience, like combing your hair, you know, or something, um, and very smooth. Um, I get irritated at a lot of poetry, but I don't get irritated at yours. It's it's just really smooth and the beautiful use of words. Oh, uh, I love it. Uh, Thank you. And anyway, I could go on, but I'm, I'm not very articulate. And reading about slowly it. is a very good way to read poems. Poems are not page turners, you know. Books of no. poems. Uh, the more I like a book of poetry, the more slowly I read it because I want it to last. I don't want yeah. to get through it. I want there to still be new poems to find. Um, so two or three poems, you know. If I really, really love some new poet that I've found. I'll never read more than two or three at a time because I want it to last yeah. so much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do with our closing poem, um, the final poem in the book in the new poem section. So again, poem that that wasn't published in in any book before before the asking came out, and it's got a little reference to something that. Um, uh, the Dzogchen Buddhists will recognize the perfection of things as they are is, is in here. Um, and also the, um, uh, you know, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva who hears the cries of people and comes is in this poem. Um, under the surface, because it's a tea house practice poem. None of my Zen poems have the word Zen in them, or Bodhisattva, or any of those words. I opened the window. What I wanted wasn't to let in the wetness. That can be mopped. Nor the cold. There are blackets. What I wanted was the siren, the thunder, the neighbor, the fireworks, the dog's bark. Which of them didn't matter? Yes, this world is perfect, all things they are. But I wanted not to be the one sleeping soundly on a soft pillow, clean sheets untroubled, dreaming there still might be time 
while this everywhere crying. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. That's the second time I've heard that poem today. Because I read it. Really? Yeah, I read it this morning. Oh, <laughs> oh. well, all right then. I've loved talking with you. Well, I've Thank loved you. talking with you. Very touching. Um, well, until we meet again, thank you most kindly. Until we do. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good Bye-bye. night. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jane. That was great. Jane Hirschfeld. Um, really uh, appreciated uh, hearing your poetry again uh, from you. Um, not the first time, but it's been a while. Uh, anyway, may you uh, live long and thrive and put out many more books of poetry. And that um, was really great talking with you. And this has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm DC, Poobah of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives, coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Doggett, Bandita, and dear lovely Katrinka. And we're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.